Welcome everyone to another edition of Beyond the Pitch. I'm Juan Arango and it's a pleasure to be with you on this, well, beginning of the week. We're recording on a Monday night. Well, for some a Monday night, not for everyone, especially for our guest today. Is I decided to go around the world and maybe tell a little bit of a story here and there. See how things are going around in or going on in the world of football when you start looking at how everybody's starting, how everybody is uh, I guess, adapting to the quote-unquote new reality that we're all living with nowadays in terms of the COVID-19 situation. And, of course, what better place to start than in Japan? Because in, in terms of what Japanese football has been capable of doing, what in terms of what Japan has been able to do, it, it's had its moments. It's had, I guess, recently it's had more ups than downs. And I guess... It can be confirmed by my guest today, which, of course, is Dan Orlowitz. Dan, of course, works over at Tokyo, or actually Japan Times. I was about to say Tokyo Times, but Japan Times. It's based in Tokyo. And, of course, he's been there for a few years covering Japanese football, covering, well, Japanese sports in general, but in particular football. Dan, it's been a pleasure, man. Thank you so much for being on the show. Tell me a little bit more what you do over at Japan Times, just to have people get a better idea, because not only do you cover football, you've been there for a few years now, and you've covered some big events that have gone on in that territory. Uh, Juan, thanks for having me. Uh, good evening, uh, good, good morning, or good time of day to all the listeners whenever you're listening to this. Um, yeah, I, I've worked at the Japan Times for, let's see, it's June. It's hard to keep track these days. <laughs> Um, but I've, I've been working at the paper for about two years now. Um, I've been writing about Japanese football. I've been following Japanese football for about 13 years now and writing about it for about as long. Uh, I've worked at a few different websites before now. Um, my, I'm the beat writer for football here. Uh, I focus on the J-League, uh, the national team, uh, trying to do more to cover grassroots, the women's game, uh, that sort of thing. Uh, and because you know, I'm, I'm interested in, in getting that news perspectives and covering different events, so I've been fortunate enough to cover a few big things that have happened here. Uh, I do a lot of photography, so I got to shoot the, uh, the figure skating World Championships last year, uh, last fall, I covered the Rugby World Cup and basically spent uh, two solid months covering that. So I, I do a lot of things. Yeah, don't, now, now let, let's hold off on the Rugby World Cup part. I wanted to go back to that a little bit later because that's something I got to delve into a little bit more. Because okay. okay. it, it does generate a little bit of sense of envy on my part. But we're going to talk about that in, in a little bit. And, and as you mentioned before, there's a lot of things that, that you've been seeing in terms... And I think the timing came out perfect. We were supposed to talk last week, but of course, things happened and we weren't able to, to do this interview. But today was the perfect time to do it because as we're speaking, a few hours before, the J-League decides to release their new, their new schedule for, for the upcoming season. And tell me a little bit more about what's, what the schedule, what that means in Japanese football, I think it's what been now what four months since you know there was any semblance of sports in Japan. So I mean, tell me a little bit more about that part. Uh, yeah, that's that's correct. Um, the J League actually started its season uh, in late February. Mm -hmm. uh, we actually had a, a much earlier start than usual in the grand scheme of things because of the Olympics and the impact that. The, ha having the Olympics in Tokyo was going to have on, on sports in general here. Uh, so we got off to an early start. We had the Super Cup. Uh, we had the first round of our League Cup. Mm -hmm. uh, we had the first round of the first of the J1 and J2. So we're our, our top two divisions. And mm -hmm. then uh, just after that happened, uh, the, the league saw what was coming. Uh, chairman... Chairman uh, Mitsuru Munai, uh, he's a smart guy. He, he really took the initiative. And, and before the government shut down sporting events, uh, he said, no, we're, we're going to go on hold and, and wait this out. And that's what we've been doing for the last uh, four months or so. And uh, the J-League was first. NPB, our, our national our baseball league, followed. 
uh, Sumo held its March tournament behind closed doors, which was really the first time that had ever happened. Uh, and then they ended up canceling their tournament in May. Now, wait, wait a second. G- give me a second. Let me, let me stop you right there for a second. I mean, it's, it's, more, it's more to give people more context in terms of, of how this impacted. I mean, you said something as traditional as Sumo was, was, was I guess it was done behind closed doors. Was that had that ever happened before? And I'm not, I'm talking about World War Two, even before that. I mean, had that ever happened in recorded history in terms of that of that particular sport? In terms of, of this sort of tournament being held behind closed doors, never. Um, this was unprecedented. We'd had yeah. uh, tournaments canceled before, uh, mostly uh, because of the war, because of sort of the post-war political situation. Uh, there were one or two tournaments that were called off because of a, uh, a gambling scandal. Mm-hmm. Actually, that was in 2011. Uh, and yeah, but, but to, to hold it behind closed doors was just never something that had never happened before. And they were testing the wrestlers regularly, a couple close calls. Fortunately, nobody was infected uh, during the tournament, mm-hmm. and then uh, unfortunately, one wrestler did die of COVID complications uh, in May. Uh, there was a, a cluster infection in that stable, and a bunch of wrestlers and officials fell sick. And so now, uh, the next tournament uh, in July would normally be held in Nagoya, which mm-hmm. is sort of in central Japan, and they're going to hold it in Tokyo behind closed doors, yeah. uh, no fans, and that's going to be the new. The new normal, which is what we call it for, for a little while. Now, it, the tournament is going to be uh, restarting on the weekend of July 4th, correct? Because I know they were talking about it was going to be either end of June, early July, but it, but it tended to lean more towards the, towards the latter, of course. Now, how, how, is, how ready, what type of protocols are the, I guess, the officials in the J-League using? And, and is it something that, maybe because many on, in this part of the world... Are using the Bundesliga as as a particular model to follow, if you will. It, are there any similarities to that? Are there some unique aspects of it that the that the officials and health authorities are, are using to be able to implement this in terms of the J League restarting? I mean, I mean, what, what similarities and contrasts are there in terms of the respective protocols? Uh, to explain that, I think it's worth quickly explaining how they got to these protocols. Mm-hmm. They released the, these protocols last um, Friday to, to the public. Uh, I've read through them. It's 70 pages. It, it, it's pretty thorough, as you can imagine. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, short, shortly after uh, sports sort of went on hiatus here, uh, the J-League and MPB formed a, ta- a joint task force. Uh, they convened this panel of medical experts of infectious disease, you know, a bunch of different disciplines, and they've been holding regular meetings uh, and been getting briefings from these medical experts and using those briefings and using those uh, suggestions and proposals to establish protocols. Mm -hmm. So these medical experts, uh, they're looking at what the Bundesliga did, they're looking at what South Korea's K-League did, and they're basing a lot of protocols on that. And, and so in terms of uh, things like training and just sort of how to get from individual training all the way up to group and team training and practice games, mm-hmm. uh, what steps teams should take when they're traveling, uh, for example, just recommending, oh, you should, like, charter flights, um, you know, be careful with bus- you know, with buses, you know, have, have things ventilated one person to a hotel room, things like this. Yeah. Um, they're in line with what the Japanese government is, is doing in terms of reopening uh, large-scale events. Uh, there, there's essentially three sets of protocols, uh, one for closed-door games, which actually uh, here they're going to call remote matches, Mm-hmm. is the term that sports officials here have come up with. So it's going to be remote matches. Remoters will be the word. that, that That's what fans who are watching the game at home will be called. Um, so there's the protocols for that. There's the protocols for once stadiums reopen and are allowed 
a very limited number of fans. And then mm-hmm. there's a third set of protocols for once things open up a bit more. Uh, and basically, the difference between a few fans and more fans is the difference between uh, the initially the cap will be 50% or 5,000. So you can have, if, if your venue normally fits 10,000, you can allow 5,000. If your venue fits 70,000, you can allow 5,000. If your venue fits 5,000, you can let in 2,500. Uh, and then if everything works out, if cases stay low, if the government feels like they can relax uh, things a bit, then in August we'll be allowed up to 50% stadium capacity, uh, and that's what's going to be for the rest of the season. Uh, looks like looking like no alcohol sales in the stadiums, um, no food sales initially, yeah. no merch sales initially. Um, there, there's just a ton of restrictions on media, what we're allowed to do, how many of us are allowed in. Okay. Uh, so, uh, like, it's I think in, in the Bundesliga they only allowed two photographers and maybe. I don't even know if they allowed any writers. Yeah, international uh, media kind of are left out in the cold for the most part, yeah. Yeah, here it's going to be uh, 25 writers, 16 photographers, uh, seven TV crews, and I think there's a cap on how many um, people in each of those crews are allowed. Mm-hmm. No no working rooms where we you check in, they take your temperature, uh, you have to give them... I've got to take my temperature daily, um, and submit all that ahead of time for each match I apply to. Um, no mix zones. It's all going to be done through Zoom. One player, two manager, or one manager, two players for each team. Mm-hmm. And even uh, the even the media who can't get into the stadium are going to be allowed to uh, listen to you know to participate in that. So it's content wise, it's going to be a bit of a, a drag for this season we're all none of us are going to have any exclusives essentially yeah i mean it's going to be about the most creative ones being able to to to, you know to be able to get the the hand now what is it since like mid-april or end of april beginning of may that japan has had less than 200 uh cases per day or something like that that i mean i mean right now it's like in 30 something about 40 something i think it was after today correct me if i'm wrong but yeah we've the last month or so has been relatively low. I mean, our yeah. spike was in sort of April, May. Uh, the last couple of days, as we were recording, have been over 40 a day, but that's mostly been um, in Tokyo. They've been doing more aggressive testing mm-hmm. of the um, red light districts, the host clubs, the hostess clubs, because mm-hmm. we're getting some clusters out of there. And yeah. so those numbers are... are Potentially, I'm, I'm going to say potentially because there are no guarantees with this sort of thing, but mm-hmm. seem to potentially be a result of, of wide, more widespread testing and not necessarily that the buyer, you know, a second wave is coming. As we're seeing yeah. in the U.S., we're not even out of the first wave. We're sort of still <laughs> dipping. But for the most part, I mean, Tokyo, Japan has been able to keep it pretty well under control. I think that we'll all find things to criticize about how the country has handled it but yeah somehow it appears to have worked well i mean just to give you a reference i mean <laughs> i mean the amount of cases i think in in japan total are half of what is or pretty much it's about the same as is miami there give, give or take a, a you know a thousand here a thousand there it's it's same same amount of cases about just in Miami alone, <laughs> compared to the entire country, you know, the entire, you know, all, all of Japan. That, that's how. And here, and, and of course, you go a little bit further up, in Orlando, of course, there's been a spike recently. In Florida, there was, actually today, there was, as of recording here on Monday, there was 2016 cases confirmed one day alone. There's been, so it, it's kind of interesting to see how it's been dealt with in in japan and how it's dealt with in the u.s in japan of course it was treated very aggressively and you're starting to see the fruits you know i guess the fruits of of that labor meanwhile in the u.s and there was a great tweet that came out today it was like it's it's amazing that you know we're having this spike because 
we've tried thinking it doesn't exist and uh, thinking it's not going to happen to us and now it's still happening you know so it's, it's kind of crazy how it's seen in different parts of the world but but for you in particular of course you being from the states and living in japan for for a few years now how is it being a foreigner and i'm not talking about a journalist you can you, you know you can look at it from that perspective as well being a journalist or being a person living in tokyo right now how is it for the foreigner is it kind of like a weird situation that you have to be locked in how, how is that experience for you in particular um that's a, that's, a, that's a tough one. It's, I think that all of us have kind of our own coping mechanisms, our own way of dealing with this. I, I'm very fortunate in that the paper uh, has uh, been pretty uh, proactive about letting us work from home. Yeah. Uh, we, we, we did transition fairly quickly once things started to get rough, and basically from April... Uh, that the entire paper has more or less been made remotely uh, every day, which which is no small feat. Um, I, I think that the toughest thing has been sort of the the dissonance in a way. It, it, living in Japan, where they're dealing with the virus in a certain way that we may not think of as thorough enough, and then we're all reading the news overseas and seeing how bad things are. And it's like, okay, like, are we, are we okay? Like, is everyone over there? Okay. Like some, some, is somebody getting it right? And if so, who is getting it right? And we never really know. And so that, that, that's sort of, there, there's a lot of whiplash there. Like it, it, it's kind of crazy to see, England go on lockdown to see U.S. you know cities go on quote unquote lockdown, and then in Japan it, it took them so long just to get like the pachinko operators and the you know the malls and the department stores to to shut down. And it's like, well, like guys, it's like look at the news, but it all seems to have sort of worked out. I mean, we're, movie theaters are open again, every other seat. Basically, you can't buy tickets in advance. You have to do it at the uh, at the theater. Um, I, the live music scene is really suffering, which hurts me because yeah. I did a lot of I did a lot of uh, work in the live music scene here mm-hmm. uh, a few years back, and it's it's heartbreaking because all these venues uh, they're all taking a massive hit because even if they restart with social distancing, um, I saw one live house posted. They can normally fit 500. Mm-hmm. And I've shot at shows there with like four or 500 people. That's yeah. like already a fire hazard. If they do one meter social distancing, they can fit like 73. And if they do two meter social distancing, they're down to 23. And you can't run, you can't survive like that. So all the music festivals are being canceled. It's a lot of sort of more minor uh, sporting events are being canceled. The J League just canceled its two youth tournaments, like its two big youth tournaments, mm-hmm. the, the J Youth Cup and the J League International Youth Cup. Um, yeah, the Suzuka the Japan uh, F1 Grand Prix mm-hmm. just got called off. Like it's it's rough, and of course that yeah, the elephant in the room is the Olympics, and and mm-hmm. that being postponed to next year, and so much of what we had planned in our terms of our sports coverage revolved around the Olympics. So yeah, uh, it's, it's tough. It's, it's tough in a lot of ways, but you know, it's, I think everyone's sort of dealing with it as best as they can. Yeah. Let me, cause that's interesting. I, I, I wanted to head in that direction too. How much of the pressure, how much was there pressure on the J league to, to start? I mean, as, as soon as possible, knowing that of course, Number one, the Olympics were postponed till 2021. But at the same time, the pressure of having this tournament done and starting 2021 soon enough and being able to finish it in time where the 2021 Olympics, now it sounds kind of weird, but still nonetheless, to have that not interfere with the J-League schedule. There was never really any pressure for the J-League to restart. I think that... Um... 
it's a different culture mm-hmm. here. You're not going to sort of have this. You, you don't have the situation like in the Premier League or maybe some other countries where people are sort of really jonesing, and yeah, the clubs have the um, the, the clubs want to restart and mm-hmm. you know, complaining about finances and all that. Like uh, J League clubs are going to be hurting financially from this for a long time. Make mm-hmm. no mistake about it. But uh, the league was always very firm about. Uh, restarting when it was safe to restart. They want they from the beginning, their priority was the safety of the players, the safety of the coaches and the team officials, and the safety of the fans. Uh, the league wanted as much as possible to start play with fans in the stadium. Uh, they weren't quite able to do that, but uh, the J1's only going to have two rounds without fans, and mm-hmm. that's actually not bad in the grand scheme of things. Uh, you know, the J2 and the J3 will have maybe one more extra round without fans. But you know, in the end, they've, they're focusing on creating as safe an environment as possible. Um, we have had a couple player infections. They've fortunately all recovered. Mm-hmm. Um, I, yeah, I don't, you know, can you wait until it's 100% safe? Then you might be waiting for a long time. But in the meantime, yeah, it's... 20, if, if Tokyo is getting 20 or 30 cases a day in a city of 13, 14 million, I uh, got like the odds there. Yeah, I mean, I mean, there's so, other, there's other, I mean, there's other, you know, and, and without trying to go into that rabbit hole of comparing COVID-19 with, with other types of, of ailments. I mean, there's other ailments in any type of city with, you know, 5, 10, 20 million people that if you have 30 cases of it, eh, okay, fine, that's not that's not a bad thing. You know, life doesn't stop per se because of it. So I can understand that perspective with the numbers that are being established. Ha, but you mentioned something interesting about the economics in the J League. Were there any significant cuts to salaries? I mean, because obviously one of the big topics, whether you talked about the Premier League, La Liga, uh, Liga, I mean, all the big leagues in Europe, even Major League Soccer uh, here in the United States talking about salary cuts and, and, and things that had to be agreed upon between owners and players. Did something like that also happen in Japan? Was there some, some type of struggle or was it something that everybody was pretty much lockstep with the overall objective, which was trying to, I guess, you, can, you know, for lack of a better term, flatten the curve, being able to get things, you know, done as smoothly as possible with the objective of getting started into some sort of normalcy in the quickest amount of time possible? Uh, as far as I know, uh, there haven't been any salary cuts at all uh, across mm-hmm. the league. Uh, at Up in uh, Constole Sapporo, uh, they are taking a financial hit. They're going to be in a bit of trouble, and actually their, their players uh, volunteered to... Uh, relinquish uh, a part or to return a part of their salary. I, I think maybe the, the their salary for March and maybe April, uh, just just to, to help the club. And that was a voluntary thing. And that was that club, those players doing it of their own accord. Um, the 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 sort of good thing in a way about the J League is that because wages are so conservative here. Um, and because the the clubs are run relatively well financially, you know, we're, we're not playing with sort of really crazy swings here. Uh, so that has allowed the clubs to sort of maintain course, keep paying everyone, um, keep on track. Now, uh, a lot of clubs are going to be in trouble. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, the J League has actually set up a line of credit that is not insignificant. I think it's $300, $400 million, something along those lines. Uh, so they're they're prepared to, to help bail out any clubs that need it. Mm-hmm. Uh, they've also changed the uh, club licensing rules, which is, if I were to say sort of our financial fair play rules, that would be simplifying it a bit much. But essentially, clubs need licenses to play in whatever division that they're in and uh part of 
that license is things like uh, not being in the red for three straight seasons, uh, having your finances in order, all that stuff. So uh, obviously a, a lot of clubs are going to be in the red next season, uh, or I should say this season. And so now, now none of the clubs are going to lose their licenses as a result of that. Um, there's not going to be any relegation this season. Mm-hmm. Uh, a couple clubs are going to be in bigger. Some clubs are going to be in more trouble than others. I mean, Sagan Tosu, uh, also known as the, the the retirement home of Fernando Torres, they lost. <laughs> out, they lost uh, about eighteen million dollars last season, and they only they only managed to avoid going into the red by generating capital through I think that they they created some new some new shares and sold those but like they they're selling they sold off a bunch of their high priced players so they're going to m- mostly sort of get through the season somehow mm-hmm. I don't know how they haven't announced a new sponsor yet um they're in trouble the the smaller clubs are going to be dealing with a lot of stuff the especially in the J2 and the J3 where you have a lot of these really really local like like these clubs aren't really working with much to begin with. Some of them are paying less than a million dollars in wages a season. Mm-hmm. So total, you talk about right? Total. Yeah, yeah, total. Okay, fine. Not that per player. I'm like that. Yeah, that's not a bad deal. But oh but no, st- no. <laughs> well, it, like it, that's the gap. Like yeah, Vissel wages are the largest in the J League at about like sixty six million or so. But half of that is Andres Iniesta. Uh, down at the bottom of the of that ladder is um, Van Rare Hachinohe, uh, who joined the J three last year, and I think their total wage bill was like eight hundred thousand dollars. Yeah, I mean something like that. So I mean, but, I mean yeah, that that's it. That says a lot. Yeah, but like I mean, the gap it really isn't that. I mean, I mean that's the gap between fifty six clubs and three divisions. Mm-hmm. But still, um, even. The, the bigger clubs are going to be almost disproportionately affected. Uh, Urawa Reds, uh, one of the big, the biggest club in the league, basically, they, I think they made a third of their revenue is from ticket sales. That's good. That's good. That's gonna be a big hit. A third, where so the twenty eight percent, whereas the rest of the league averages about eighteen percent. Wow. They get about 35,000 fans a game up at Saitama Stadium. So what's going to happen when they're restricted to 5,000 for a month? Uh, when they're restricted, I think the most they'll be able to admit is like 30,000. When they can't have vendors, they can't you know, sell beer. Like th- This is all going to stack up in weird and sort of terrifying ways. Yeah, that, that, it sounds like it. I mean, it, it sounds... It sounds quite uncertain, but at the same time, it sounds a bit more reassuring when you start talking about other leagues around the world and kind of no plan in, in certain places. But anyway, I digress. We're here with Dan Orlowitz on Beyond the Pitch. Dan, I want to also ask you, I mean, Japan within the Asian context of football is always a big player, has been so for many years. You start looking at places like Europe, you start looking at places like South America, and they're still a bit gung-ho about wanting to go and have an international season. Have their national teams travel to South America for World Cup qualifiers. UEFA is looking to set up a schedule and it might be resolved in the next few days. Actually, on Wednesday when the Champions League uh, is already official, Europa League, all those tournaments. How is How is... Asia in general, in sp- specifically Japan, looking at that particular thing, is it that, that particular aspect of football? Is it, hey, you know, we're, we can't wait for it to start? Or is it something that's not even remotely closer in anyone's back of their mind? The uh, Asian Football Confederation uh, put out a release last week mm-hmm. uh, basically, basically uh, saying that, oh, our member associations are committed to finish, you know, to, to getting back to World Cup qualifying mm-hmm. in, like, September, October, November to make up for the, the dates in March and June that we lost. Uh, we're committed to finishing the, the uh, Asian Champions League. We're committed to finishing the AFC Cup. And it's like, 
guys, guys, guys. Like the 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 Champions League isn't gonna happen. Um, that's my personal uh, opinion. I've seen the uh, the Uzbekistan Football Association mm-hmm. leaked some some agreement to finish the Western because the the ACL is divided into East and West. Yeah. Until the final, and it, there's like an agreement to to hold the West games at like a central location in September, and then get have then wrap up the final by I think December fifth. Mm-hmm. I think December fifth is the date of the final, and you're looking at that as like that's all well and good, but what are you going to do about East Asia, where? Uh, the K-League is still playing behind closed doors. Australia is not letting people in. Uh, the J-League is going to have basically one game every three days from early July through mm-hmm. mid-December. Um, China is dealing with a potential second wave, and who knows when the CSL is even going to start. When are you? When are you going to have international club football how are you going to have international club football like none of this like they have i understand that they don't want to disappoint you know sponsors stakeholders whatever like they have to pretend like they're still gonna do this Mm -hmm. but there's no way they can do this it's not like like it just doesn't make sense you you look at the the j league schedule and it's like there there's nowhere to fit um, Yokohama F. Marinos or FC Tokyo flying to Korea for three days, flying back and then playing a game, and you know another game. There's nowhere. There's no room in this schedule. Mm-hmm. I mean, if, if you look, look on the Western portion, you start looking at places like Iran, who still is battling their, their particular, on, on their front, they have issues in terms of, of, of infection and, and the spread of COVID-19 throughout throughout that country so i mean i mean it, it, it just sounds weird in that aspect but also is it because the afc for some reason have they poured any money into these teams saying hey you know there's there's gonna be some financial duress there's gonna be some issues okay my champions league teams here here's some money for you to be able to subsist and i, I think that's is that part of the reason why they're so willing and wanting so badly to start this tournament again, was their money already given to clubs, or is it something that's still, you know, not not they haven't gotten to that point yet? Yeah, they haven't gotten to that point yet because we have we I've heard since the Champions League went on. I mean, they went on hiatus in March. Mm-hmm. They've uh, basically at the time of the first three, the first two or three rounds. Only uh, I think twenty I think twenty seven of the twenty of the forty eight games that were scheduled were actually played. Yeah. Um. You know they they did announce a sort of a new schedule. Mm-hmm. But it, it's not gonna like that's not worth the paper it's printed on. Like. Well, no, no nothing really is. I mean, at this point, no, I mean, no, regardless no, of who no, says it, right? Yeah, but, I mean, they have to keep coming up with something until they come up with something that works. Yeah, I get it. But, like, at this point, you know, uh, I don't know. You also have to think about things like um, it's it's 2020. I'm pretty sure that we get a, uh, like, a Suzu- the Suzuki Cup this mm-hmm. year, the, uh, the Southeast Asian uh, Championships. Mm-hmm. Like. That's you know, all that all those national teams are gonna have to travel because they changed the format mm-hmm. uh, from central group leagues. Like, I, I just don't know. I'm, I'm sure that you know when you get to these big you know confederations and they all they have their interests that they have to deal with. They have to make the sponsors happy, the broadcasters happy, or at least pretend like they're doing so. Um, I just don't see it. Like it, it's. Nobody in Japan has really mentioned the ACL, and I think that's just such a remote concern. I, I It came up in one of the press conferences last week, and it was either the J-League chairman or someone else, uh, some other official. He basically said, well, we made the schedule 
um, with what with the information that we have, and that does not include the ACL because they've been told nothing. And also, I mean, also keep in mind, uh, Qatar and Australia are still committed to the Copa America for next year, which was supposed to be playing actually, which was supposed to be being played right now, but. Um, I mean that that's going to be another issue to look at. I mean, obviously there there hasn't been much talk of that as well, but it will emerge eventually as 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 things are going on. Now, then I wanted to also delve into a little bit going back to the J League a little bit more. Where you know for us people that you know us us that haven't been see, watching the J League as much, of course everyone knows that Andres Iniesta, of course until last season. Um, Fernando Torres, those types of things, those types of acquisitions helped a lot in order to give some recognition or, or put the J League in some sort of a radar for football fans in this part of the world. What should we be looking at? Those, those that would be, you know, sitting in front of a you know computer or a TV set watching the J League late nights in this part of the world again. Uh, what should we be looking at? I mean, what are some of the things that you could tell me about, hey, you know what? Check this team out. Check this player out. Players that can really capture the attention of certain fans here in this part and say, hey, you know what? This guy might be in X or Y league in a year or two. This team is pretty dynamic. Watch out when this team ends up playing um, in the Club World Cup, whenever that might end up being. Tell me a little bit more about those. The Club World Cup that's supposed to take place in yeah, yeah. December. Yeah, 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 exactly, exactly. Which is an additional pressure for those ACL teams. I guess pressure in, in, in quotes, but still, nonetheless. But going back to, to the, the question was, the, the, I mean, what, what should we be looking at when the J-League does start? Or who should we be looking at in the J-League once the season starts? Okay, um, I mean, there's this is sort of one of those... You know, no clue where to begin questions because this obviously isn't a normal mm -hmm. uh, J-League season yeah. at all. Normally, if someone asks me, uh, what, you know, what do you, what's the biggest appeal of the J-League? I'd say it's the atmosphere, it's the, the, the ability to play is very high, that the fans are amazing. Like, it's, it's, it's such a complete package and it's going to be uh, sort of difficult to appreciate that package now that we're, we're going to be missing uh, so much of what makes the league unique. Now, in terms of players, um, uh, you know, I guess you can start with, you start with a club and you start all the way up north, up in Sapporo, where they have such a talented and, and very international roster. You have former uh Arsenal man, former one-time England international Jay Bothroyd, a, a name that I'm sure you might not have thought of in quite a while. Who's actually? <laughs> I'm trying to. Uh, you're jogging my memory at this point, but still, yeah, good. But but uh, you know, England fan, you know, it, it, Premier League fans know, uh, and uh, he has become like sort of iconic up there. Like he he's. Uh, found a, a spring in his step. He's been in the league for something like four or five years now, and uh, he's doing really well up there. And up there, you've got um, Chanatip uh, Songkrasen, who uh, a Thai midfielder. He was the first uh, Southeast Asian player to make the J League's best eleven uh, in two thousand eighteen. He, he's one of the best. Uh, Asian midfielders uh, playing right now. I'm just an absolutely incredible talent. Uh, down in Kobe, you mentioned Andres Iniesta, but probably the best uh, Japanese player on that team is uh, the striker Kyogo Furuhashi. Uh, he, he's 25. He finally got his uh, national team debut uh, last December. And honestly, I think that if this was a normal season... Uh, he would have gone to Europe this summer. Uh, he is an amazing player. Uh, he has also had the benefit of playing next to Iniesta and, and learning from him, and, and that's you know huge for his development. Uh, you look at you know just just the way that teams play. Like uh, FC Tokyo just had this. I mean, last season for at least the first half of the season, 
they had this amazing attacking style, uh, just just really like like high pressing, quick counters. Uh, you had Takefusa Kubo just bossing the midfield and, and being a playmaker. And then they lost him and everything went to hell. Uh, but then you look at um, Yokohama F. Marinos, who did end up sort of tipping uh, Tokyo to win the league. And they're playing under Ange Postacoglu, who became the first Australian to win the J League. Yeah, lo- lo- love Ange. Lo- love him. And He's and great. Yeah. Ange is the man, and he just has that team playing such gorgeous and, and and fun football i mean the 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 the, mm-hmm. the level of foreign talent they have with you know marcos junior tiago martins um you know they had mateus last season they had just tons of players who mm-hmm. would when one got injured another stepped up they all believed completely in playing this attacking style and Everyone bought in and everyone stayed committed for the whole season. That was really just a, a cool thing to watch. I mean, you can go, you can look at each team and you'll find it just the the diversity of international players has improved yeah. so much over the last uh, couple of seasons. Um, yeah, there's there's something, every club really has something to to keep an eye on or as someone to keep an eye on. And uh, it's unfortunate that we're going to lose the atmosphere, that we're going to lose mm-hmm. a lot of makes the J-League such a fun league to watch, uh, but the talent is still going to be there. Uh, and one good thing, if you can call it that, about having such a compressed season yeah. is that with, with five substitutes per game, uh, you're going to see a lot of new faces. I think a lot of the young players mm-hmm. are going to get chances that they normally wouldn't have this season, and that'll be fun to watch. I, you know, I'm I'm happy that you mentioned Ange Postacoglu because I remember watching the last few rounds of the J League last year, and and when when he wins the league title, the the humility and and I guess the the the, the graciousness. And, and him with his family walking around the pitch and just being able to, you know, there was, I mean, obviously there was a lot of kind of, ex- nobody knew exactly what was going to happen with him. But at the end of the day, when, when he was able to come in, like you said, people bought into his style and, and, and so on. The fact that he kind of meshed and, and was able to adapt himself to not only just the team, but also the culture within the team and pretty much Japanese culture in, in general. It was quite amazing to see. And, and that was like, yeah, you know what, man, you know, Australia's loss is Japan's gain from that perspective. Do you see him kind of taking that route over in Japan and, and, and maybe ingraining himself a bit more? And maybe you never know in the future, if they decide to have another national team coach, you start seeing Ange as that? He was his name actually did come up um, a little, uh, you know, his especially when uh, after December's uh, East Asian or excuse me E A F F E one Championship, which was the East Asian Cup, mm-hmm. um, Japan didn't do that well, and there was talk of Moriyasu, uh, possibly Hajime Moriyasu, yeah. uh, who. He, t- he coaches not just the senior team, but also the Olympic team. Mm-hmm. And there was talk of him stepping down to focus on one or the other. Um, and around that time, there were some people saying, hey, like, why not Ange? And it, it could work, but I don't think that he's particularly interested in that role right now just because he likes playing, you know, he likes working with players he likes on the everyday. a basis. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, I'd love to see it. Uh, yeah, I think it'd be fun. But the 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 national team uh, comes with a certain set of coaching challenges. Mm-hmm. I, I want to say that part of me doesn't want to see Ange sort of worn down by all of that BS. Like <laughs> you, you look at what what uh, Vahid Halahojic uh, dealt with during his tenure, and mm-hmm. the fact that he wasn't even allowed to to see things out to the world cup and that will forever uh, remain one of the greatest what ifs uh 
uh, of the national team. Uh, yes, it was a storybook run to the round of 16, and, and mm-hmm. that game against Belgium uh, was absolutely unforgettable. But you do sort of wonder, like, what? how would things have gone? Like, I don't know. I mean, hey, if Ange wins another title, they're going to put up a statue of him outside Nissan Stadium, and he will deserve it. I mean, um, is it a lot too? Because I mean, if you start looking, uh, I'm trying to remember. I'm, I'm trying to remember the, the 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 chronological order. Obviously, you you start up. You know, you start looking what back at, at Philippe Troussier when he was the coach back in in uh, in '98. Seiko took over for a cycle. Uh, I think you're uh, you're you're a bit of a cycle early because well, okay, so at the '98 World Cup, it was Okada. Okay. Oh, I'm sorry. Was was it? It was after. It was after that Trussier took over. So after Trussier took over, and so Trussier was the Olympic. He, yes. He he did both teams through the through Sydney. Okay. And then through the twenty the two thousand two World Cup. Yeah. yeah. Then Zico took over. Uh, then Ivka Oshim took over after Germany, but he had health issues and had to step down. Yeah. And that's when Okada took over for his second tenure. And yeah. then it was Zacharoni. Uh, Javier Aguirre back in there. Well, well, uh, Javier Aguirre was like for a handful of matches. That was pretty much it. Aguirre was for uh, post-Brazil. That was post-Brazil, yeah. The um, Asian Cup. And then that actually... I covered that Asian Cup. Boy, was that a uh, roller coaster. And uh, then he stepped down. Yeah. Right after, but that was the whole. There was there was his whole thing with the match fixing scandal, and uh, that 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 was weird. And then um, then it was Hal Hal Hosich, yeah. Yeah, and he did some interesting things, uh, but um, it was. Yeah, I mean, we could do a whole podcast. Yeah, yeah. Know, I mean, I mean, the, the point. My point was, uh, <laughs> start started to rattle off names from from Japanese sorry, football history. Sorry about that. No, no, no. Yeah, no. That's my fault. I should have. I should have gone down that rabbit hole. But the point of, of of being able to point out those 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 names, and again, this has a lot to do with Ange as well, is that those coaches, maybe Halihonsic did have some success. Of course, he did. Uh, but the ones prior to that. There was it was a lot of hit or miss as well, you know, health issues, um, results not going their way, impatient FA presidents, so on and so forth, that ended up, you know, being the demise of those coaches. Yeah, um, you, you know, you you can go back and look at how, I mean, Trussier dealt. He overcame a lot of pressure and from from the FA, and he worked did very well. Uh, in uh, 2002, which was a watershed moment for Japanese football. Mm-hmm. Uh, Zico just sort of hit his style. I mean, he, he just didn't have the locker room under control, um, and that was an issue. You know, Os- Oshim probably would have done very well if he'd stuck it out. Um, you know, it, it, 2010, I mean, there were pretty low expectations heading into South Africa. There were, I, I, if I remember correctly... I mean, they, they got pretty They got pretty close, they got very close to playing Spain. Right, but, but, but they they were, act, there was there were actually pushes as late as May mm-hmm. for uh, Okada to step down. Mm-hmm. Like, ban protests, and it, things got pretty weird. It's, there, there's a reputation of, of for Japan being, you know, very friendly fans and, and it's a well-deserved reputation. But actually, there's been a number of, like, protests. And, like, you look back at, like, uh, 97, uh, back when they were trying to qualify for France and they lost a, a key game and the supporters actually blockaded the team bus. Like, things that, that was That was Okada, right? That was, that was Okada's first or second tenure? That was, I think... I'm not sure if Okada was even in charge at that time. It might have been the la- the, the previous Japanese coach who had okay. stepped in. But we, the national team has also sort of changed. I mean, it sort of, it has changed in a big way, which is that over the last 20 years, it has gone from being all J-League-based players 
to nearly all Europe-based players. And it's, you know, managing that transition has, has been a challenge and, and how the, the foreign coaches ha- have dealt with that and with the messages that they've sent and what they've tried to encourage. Uh-huh. Um, it, it, it's been a bit of a wild ride. You look at, you know, like Zaccaroni, uh, he won the Asian Cup in 2011 with his boys and those were his boys through the rest of the cycle. Uh-huh. But he'd really pushed for better physical you know, training. He famously uh, outed the body fat of uh, several players and did a lot of things and tried to restrict media access and, like, was a very European coach in a way. Yeah. Like, but you, you can't do what, you know, like, the culture in Europe allows for that sort of thing. But in Japan, like, if all of a sudden you say, hey, we're going to get rid of the mix zone uh, after training every day, like, that's going to create conflict with the media, and that's not going to end well for anyone. Mm-hmm. Like, so these are weird challenges, but getting back to, I think, the point yeah. that you wanted to make five minutes ago, um, <laughs> I think that Ange, I mean, he obviously, he respects the culture. Mm-hmm. Uh, he understands it. I think he has a very good understanding of it, and he's fortunate enough to be at a club that has that gave him the time to have that understanding uh his 2018 season was very uneven i mean money knows could they they could they would either lose they would either win seven nil or lose five three like there was no in between uh it, it was uh just defensive inconsistency all that sort of stuff so could he do it like possibly um, I if he ever wanted to give it a shot, um, we would love to have a uh, a manager like him take over the national team. I think it'd be a, a breath of fresh air. Mm-hmm. Uh, if, if he's ever ready for it, you know, I think he knows who to call. Yeah, I mean, I mean, that that's I guess the assessment. Of course, I'm I'm in a much distant position. Uh, to make that type of visit, but it seems like that's about about right. I, I wanted to, you mentioned something about you know the foreign players and, and, and the domestic players in places like Argentina in, in some parts of, of the world. They're within the media and, and within fans as well. There, there's a lot of discussion on how a national team should be built. Should we use our boys? And, and what I mean, what I mean, our boys, the domestic players, instead of using them. You know, you start having this dividing line between foreign-based players and domestic league players. Do you have that type of argument as well? Is there that type of discussion that goes on in Japanese football as well? There's a similar discussion, which is that there tends to be... I mean, there's enough Japanese players. There's something like 30 or 40... Japanese players in relatively decent top-tier leagues in Europe, or in first-division leagues, I should say, between mostly in Belgium, Portugal, Germany, a few in Italy, England, um, Turkey, well, Yutanagatomo might not be in Turkey for too much longer, Spain. So you have all these players, and especially all of these young players that have gone over in the last two years, um, Ritsu Doan, Shoya Nakajima, uh, Koi Takura, Ritardo uh, Meshino, uh, the, the latter two who were bought by Manchester City and then loaned off. Um, so you, you have all these players and a lot of like talented young potential there, but you also do have the J-League. Now, the issue is that at this point, any talented young player in the J-League is only going to be there until they turn 22 or maybe 23, and then they're off to Europe. So... Mm-hmm. The, the question is, like, like, how do you manage that then? Like, like, can, what is the role of the J-League in regards to the national team? Is the J, should the J-League be trying to keep its best young players, or should the J-League be developing young players and become a seller's league? Um, and how should coaches treat those players? I mean, you, you look at, the players, the Japanese players in the J League who are doing very well, um, not you know, uh, some of them are very interesting picks that could possibly 
make it onto the national team. But it, you know, it's are they World Cup quality? That's that's sort of that's, another question. Yeah, that's the that's the big question. Yeah. So. Um, yeah. Damn, damn, <laughs> damn, it's it's been a pleasure to have you on. I, we again, like I like I told you, I I had a lot of questions for you, and and I and I, I still do, as a matter of fact. And I know I'm not. If if we could keep going, I think we would probably go all morning for you, which is probably not the most productive thing, but still, nonetheless, it, again, it's been a pleasure. There's there is one more question I do have to ask you, and I said that I totally envy you for it because of of all the emotions that Japan went through during that that great rugby world cup from last year tell me a little bit more about covering that particular event i mean you've covered the japanese national team in some of its highest moments some of its lowest moments in the past few years but where did that event in japan's performance in home soil how did that rank as far as sporting experiences covered for you oh man um so coming into this i had never covered rugby before Mm-hmm. Uh, I, in my capacity at the paper, I've edited rugby stories. Mm-hmm. Uh, I obviously understood what was happening, and, and I knew that throughout the World Cup was going to be a big event for us. And so I pushed uh, to be, <clears throat> excuse me, I, I pushed to be allowed to sort of have more of a freer hand and, and focus on our multimedia content, our social media content, which is something that I've been been working on as since i joined the sports desk and uh my bosses uh to their credit said uh mostly as a result of the response that my figure skating coverage had drawn they were like okay like try let's let's see what happens and so i would i went to a bunch of games i i spoke to fans before after did sort of culture pieces um live tweeted and it was such an experience as someone who had never been exposed to the sport before to go out on the pitch and to shoot these games and it was all totally new and for me like that that's part of the fun is like i'm learning something like i'm learning something new and i'm just sharing what i'm learning essentially and it puts me in a a position where i think um I interviewed the former coach of South Africa. Mm-hmm. He won, I think he actually won the World Cup in 2011. And I just randomly spoke to him, like doing like a box pop interview on the street. And I didn't know it was him <laughs> until my coworker said, wait, you interviewed him? And because uh, he, he had said, like, oh, he was a coach of Toyota. And I was like, okay, yeah, this, this coach of Toyota. I talked to him. He was like, wait, you were, what? And it was cool. It was amazing. And the fans were all so nice and, and so generous with their time and their knowledge. And, you know, it was just it, the process of learning them from them was yeah. so cool. And you get to the games themselves. And I've been in some loud stadiums. Garawa Reds mm-hmm. eight during you know during an ACL final, um, well during any cup final really you know the the national you know team game um, clinching you know Samurai Blue clinching a spot in the twenty eighteen World Cup mm-hmm. against Australia. Yeah, I remember um, that one. I saw that one on television. That was intense. That was an amazing. Game. Yes. Um, you know I, I've. Just I've sat in front of, of you know many goals. I, the figure skating championships. Uh, you know Yuzuru Hanyu lands that quad, and, and that arena just explodes, and that was uh, incredible. But never have I been in a stadium as loud as Japan Ireland at Kopa Stadium in Shizuoka when Japan scores that second try. And takes the lead. Um, I I think this part this part of the podcast is going to be edited by Phil Brown. So <laughs> so we'll 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 continue talking about this. I I think this is great. I mean, yeah, I mean that that match, of course, is going to remain in, in the history. That, that, that just 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 a, like a sonic boom. I'm surprised yeah. that didn't register an earthquake somewhere. Um, I had just never, and of course I was on totally on the wrong side of the pitch for it, mm-hmm. but you know, that, that, that just as a photographer, uh, sometimes that happens, um, but 
just to be there and and experience that and then I I shot all of Japan's games uh, in the World Cup, so the four pool games and then the, the quarterfinal against South Africa. But the the final pool game mm-hmm. uh, after the day after the typhoon, which caused two or three games, I think three games to be canceled. Yeah, exactly. We, did, we didn't know until the morning of if the game was going to happen. You know, I'm ready. I've got my gear packed. Like I'm on the first train out to to Yokohama, talking to fans, and it's like. And you were on the first train back. <laughs> um, gosh, no, I I probably won the last trains back. Yeah. Um, but I did get home because actually I think the next morning I I don't know I got home at like two o'clock and I had an email from the BBC and they're like can you come on at six to do this thing and I'm like mm. how's seven <laughs> thirty <laughs> you know I'll, I won't get up at you know, my wife asked me to wake up at six that's a push like I'm not gonna <laughs> no 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 no, no. <laughs> I'll, I'll, get up at, I'll get I'll get up at seven for the BBC like the BBC deserves seven. Um, but not six thirty seven. No, Papa needs his wake up juice. And, of course. Um, but that game against Scotland, knowing that Japan, you know, they needed to not just you know, to win, but then they got the fourth, the you know, the four tries, and then they they held on in the second half, and it looked a little dicey at times. But just like the emotion in the stadium, and you see people crying, and you see like how much it means to these fans and you one of the things that working for the papers let me do is, is see these these sports that i normally don't get to cover as much you know previous to joining joining jt i mean i covered the j league i covered the national team and mm-hmm. i covered line football which is you know an amazing sport that will you know get its due at the paralympics now next year yeah but like it's much different you know sort of like football emotions you sort of get to learn them after a while oh it's much different from like it's much it's so much different from like rugby you know, japan yeah. becoming especially after coming so close in 2015 you know, these these fans who have stuck it out with Japanese rugby when nobody cared about Japanese rugby, and now they've made it. Yeah. And it's, it's a huge thing. And it was ingre- I was very fortunate to be there for that. It, it's, it's incredible that you mentioned that because one of the first images yeah, in terms of Japanese sports that I have from a personal perspective, I was with my dad in 96 when when of course the olympics were going on in atlanta of course some of the matches were played down here in, in south florida i go to brazil japan of course everyone's decked out in in, in their brazil gear and japan oh, yeah yeah the, the yeah, japan yeah. game where, where ito scores the, against brazil when the final whistle blows my dad happened to be sitting next to a japanese fan and, and the japanese fan jumped up my dad hugged him he's crying i mean i mean he turned like baby hamster red. I mean, it just, just, I mean, his face, his tears just streaming down. And my dad, my dad's laughing uncontrollably, but, you know, laughing because he felt good. He felt happy for, for, um, for, for this fan. Because, I mean, obviously that was one of the greatest, I mean, it was one of the more memorable sporting events in terms of football in, in Japanese football history in, in the Olympics, especially beating the Brazil team that they beat with the players that they had at that point. So, I mean, to hear all these stories, of course, it starts jogging one's memory about certain things that have occurred. And, you know, hearing, remembering when Japan beat South Africa in, in 2015, remembering those matches and how how it made it such a special tournament to be watching, even though, you know, you're kind of watching a cross-eyed at four, you know, 3.30, 4, 5 o'clock in the morning. But still, nonetheless, I mean, it didn't take away any special aspect out of it. Yeah, one actually cool thing that's going to happen next uh, Friday on, I think, the 26th mm-hmm. is that the uh, the Japan Football Association is going to be streaming uh, the uh, Japan-Iran World Cup uh, qualifying playoff in Johor Bahru from 1997. 
wow. the, the, the game that sent Japan to its first World Cup, which is, I mean, <clears throat> after probably even second to the agony of Doha in 93, but, but <laughs> probably maybe equal to those in, in terms of games that have had the biggest effect on the, the, the Japanese football psyche, uh, such as it is. Yeah. Uh, so I'm looking forward to that. I've never seen the full match, so uh gonna gonna catch that maybe maybe figure out how to record the youtube uh, stream so i can watch later because it's oh there, there there's a lot of ways you can do that kind of underhanded but anyway i'm yeah, not gonna go i'm not gonna go into that i mean i don't oh, know yeah, anything yeah. about it personally sure but there's ways no but but it, it'll be um it, it'll be cool to catch that sort of history i mean if, if nothing else uh this uh covid vacate this co-vacation uh, has given us a, a few sort of historical matches. Uh, DAZN has been streaming a lot of stuff. Uh, the J-League has been putting up a lot of uh, classic highlights. So it's been cool to to see these moments of history that until now have been locked away in the, the Disney vault of Japanese football. So that's great to look. And before we go, I wanted people to know. Okay, it's not that you're you know you're not from you know you're not from Japan originally. <laughs> Just so people know, where are you from? I'm from Philadelphia originally. You see, you know, yeah. With well, as of today, it's called Kevin Durant Land, but nonetheless, as he became one of the owners of the Philadelphia Union. Absolutely, big, big, big day for us. Um, I've been a Sons of Ben uh, member since uh, 2010. I, I keep that updated. I've, I think I, I've got the probably the record or the the the, the most lopsided ratio for. Uh, years in the Sons of Ben versus matches attended because I've only been able to make it back for like three games but uh, yeah, when I can I try. You see? Yeah. Hey, look, if there's a city I love it's Philadelphia man. I got lots of memories there especially having gone to Temple for a little bit Okay. And uh, you know, I mean, it, it's, it's, it's a special I mean, I, lo I love Philly. I mean, it's, it's, it's a town that I really came to love you know, for its grittiness and, and course all, all that so and of, and of course it's and of course gritty yeah and north philly does embody gritty <laughs> for that matter so we'll see damn it it's been awesome i told you it was gonna be 20 minutes i guess i lied but uh oh well what can we do <laughs> thank, i'm kidding thank you so much for being on on beyond the pitch where can people follow you man you, you have a lot of great content and i, I hope people can follow you and, and be able to have um a, lot, a, a good experience as far as following you? Uh, I guess the easiest way would be on Twitter uh, at Aishteru Tokyo, A-I-S-H-I-T-E-R-U-T-O-K-Y-O. Uh, check out the uh, Japan Times website. Uh, go to our sports section. Uh, all of my uh, football-related stuff goes up there. And, um, yeah, that that's... That's it. Sort of. Those are two my two main outlets. I do a lot of uh, guest work on the J Talk podcast, mm -hmm. uh, which will you know they, they've been doing fantastic work over there. So if you want to learn more about the J League on a regular basis, uh, give them a subscribe uh, and a listen. And mm -hmm. uh, yeah, uh, well, thanks for having me. It's been uh, a pleasure. Oh no, thank you, man. It's it's actually been a pleasure for for us here to have you on. So. Again, thanks so much, and you know, hopefully we, we, we hear from you again. Thanks so much. No problem. Have a good one.